Welcome to the Afternoon Light Summer Series produced by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. In this summer series, you will hear presentations from our November 22 conference on Coming to Power, Learning to Govern and Gathering Momentum 1943-54. to In today's episode, you will hear from Tom Switzer on Liberalism Applied, Policy Shifts in the Transition from Chifley to Menzies, followed by Andrew Blythe on Early Think Tanks and Their Impact on the Menzies Government, And finally, Dr. Christopher Beer on The Forgotten People by the Sea, Liberalism, Affluence and the Central Coast of New South Wales during the 1950s. Thank you very much, Georgina. And can I say from the outset, thank you very much, Georgina, for inviting me. Also, Nina, Zach for inviting me. I run a think tank that's been around for 45 years or so, and I can't imagine what it would be like to create a think tank and get it going. So more power to you, Georgina, given that it has been just a year since you started. We mentioned some wit of Robert Menzies, and I thought not enough has been said about his wit. There were many times when he would speak at rallies and he'd face protesters and hecklers. And once a heckler said, Tell us what you know, Menzies, it won't take long. To which Menzies replied, I tell you what, I tell you what we both know and it won't take any longer. (laughs) My other favourite bit of Menzies' wit was at an election rally and some heckler intervened and said, Menzies, I wouldn't vote for you if you were the Archangel Gabriel. And to which Menzies replied, Madam, if I were the Archangel Gabriel, I'm afraid you would not be in my constituency. My other favourite Menzies stories relates to something that's written in that wonderful collection of essays or letters by his daughter, Heather Henderson, that was published about 10 or so years ago, Letters to My Daughter. And there was one letter that really struck me, and it was about his time in Washington in early February 1969. So this is three years after Menzies leaves office and defies Enoch Powell's doctrine that all political careers end in failure. This was three days since he left power, three years. And February 1969, it's just within a few weeks of Robert Menzies witnessing Richard Nixon's presidential inauguration. And Nixon invited the former Prime Minister to the Oval Office for a private lunch. And the other distinguished guests included a very young National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger, who at this stage was not a household name, the Secretary of State, Will Rogers, and Thomas Dewey, who was the Republican candidate in the 1948 presidential election against Harry Truman, and two senior State Department figures on East Asia. And you just think about that. A former Prime Minister, three years after leaving office, being courted by the most powerful man in the world in his private office within just weeks of his inauguration. But the episode was more curious for another reason, and this is what Menzies told his daughter. Quote, while the new president and all the others present put questions to me and were anxious to get my views and, where possible, my advice, Menzies went on to say, I was able to look back with a wry smile and remember that since I retired three years earlier, 
no member of the administration in Australia, or for that matter, no member of parliament, has ever asked me for my views on anything. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So he was seen as a bit of a fuddy-duddy, unfortunately, in Australia in that period in the mid to late 60s, but he was lionised by the President of the United States. Nixon and Menzies did have a good relationship. I found a document that's not related to my talk today. It was in September 65 when Nixon was widely regarded as discredited damaged goods because he lost the presidential election to John F. Kennedy in 1960 and then he lost the governorship of California to Pat Brown in 1962. These were Nixon's wilderness years and it was widely believed that his political obituary had been written. And Nixon came to Australia in September 65 and spent a night with Robert Menzies at the Kirribilli House and they had a lovely dinner together. And the next day, Nixon wrote Menzies a letter where he said something along the lines that, please tell me that one day when you retire from office, you will write a book about great political comebacks. How is it that someone like you, who was damaged goods after the 41 election, particularly after the 43 and 46 elections, how did you come back and be in power for so long? And that's a very important lesson for all politicians who have been written off and there is a book still to be written on that very subject. One day I'd love to do it, but it requires a lot of work because you need to get inside the psychology of the individual, how they can bounce back and see that every time the critics give him the kiss of death, it's just mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. <laughs> and that's what happened with Menzies and indeed Nixon and various other politicians. I want to just start by acknowledging various secondary sources for this paper. I don't claim to be an historian, although I did study history. And I haven't looked at the primary documents on these issues, but I think it's important just to say from the outset that I'm indebted to David Kemp. As you all probably know, David has published five volumes of liberalism. And in my judgment, his best one is volume four, How Australians Chose Liberalism Over Socialism. Now, he talks about the period from 1926 to 1966. As you can imagine, a lot of that explains Menzies and his economic policy thinking from 49 right through to 66. I'm also indebted to Alan Martin, the great biographer of Robert Menzies. He wrote two volumes. I focus on the second volume of Robert Menzies from 43 until his death in 78. John Howard's The Menzies Years is also very important. And Paul Kelly, a special praise to Paul, my former colleague at the Australian newspaper. Paul, in 2001, published a book about Australian Federation. This was to mark the centenary of the Federation in 1901. And that book was later turned into a series for both ABC's Radio National and ABC Television. And it is, in my judgment, the best documentary any Australian outlet has broadcast. There are five episodes and they talk about the different stages of the Australian settlement from 1901 onwards. So I do rely quite a bit on Paul Kelly. I should also stress from the outset that It'd be remiss not to acknowledge Anne Henderson and the work she has just done on the question of bank nationalisation. I won't focus on that too much for obvious reasons, but I think it's nevertheless important to put my paper in the context of bank nationalism debates in the late 1940s. As Anne made it very clear, Chifley embarked on the nationalisation of the private banks in 1947, and it was the first and only attempt by the federal ALP to introduce socialism into this country. And it was obviously the most contentious economic policy decision. It represented, as Anne made very clear, the death knell of the Labor government of that period from 1941 to 1949. But it also gave 
the kiss of political life to Robert Menzies is, and made it clear it was widespread debunking of Robert Menzies as political leader. You can't win with Menzies. And Menzies used this issue of the bank nationalisation to great effect. He launched a free enterprise campaign against, quote, dictatorship at home. And in his policy speech, Menzies in the late 40s pledged to repeal the law, but his overarching theme was to the need to repudiate socialism. And his main slogan was, a vote for Labor is a vote for socialism. And obviously, bank nationalisation was the prime exhibit. He attacked the myth of the moderate Ben Chifley. And as Anne made clear, as a consequence, Robert Menzies won the 49 election with a 74-47 coalition majority. This was a new era of private enterprise and the repudiation of socialism. Now, Menzies saw the significance of this issue for Australians as being the link between nationalisation and their own private property rights. And as Paul Kelly made it clear, it's in fact the link between capitalism and liberty, the link that Australian socialists underestimated. Many Australians saw a potential threat to their own life implicit in the creation of a government-owned and controlled bank monopoly. Paul Kelly says there are three lessons. First, that Labor best governed by focusing on middle-of-the-road brands of government intervention. Second, that the public valued the economic and moral benefits of free enterprise. And thirdly, and crucially for today's discussion, that the nationalisation issue was exploited by Menzies not to repudiate government intervention and state power, but to position himself as its most successful champion. I want to repeat that. These are Kelly's words. The nationalisation issue was exploited by Menzies not to repudiate government intervention and state power, but to position himself as its most successful champion. And this, according to Kelly, was Labor's real defeat. Now, as is widely known, the 1949 election delivered the post-war prosperity in the 50s and the 60s. This was the post-war structure that Chifley and Curtin created. It's been marvellously told by the late historian Stuart McIntyre called the boldest experiment. But these legacies would be enjoyed by not chiefly in the Labor Party, but Robert Menzies. He skillfully turned this into a Liberal Party issue. That is, in office, Menzies only enhanced the economic framework he inherited from his Labor predecessors. This was about civilising capitalism. It was Menzies who consolidated and gave expression to this enduring post-war legacy. Menzies could claim ownership of it. And that's why Paul Keating, who was one of Menzies' staunchest critics, particularly in the 1990s when Keating was Prime Minister, hardly a day went by without Prime Minister Keating bagging the Menzies' legacy in Parliament. And he later lamented, quote, We, Labor, we built the post-war structures and gave it to the Liberal Party. We gave it to Menzies. <laughs> exactly. Classic Keating. So I think the point to bear in mind here is that Menzies was a man of his time, was a creature of his culture. And a classic case in point is what he did after the December 49 election. Now, there were calls, particularly within the co-governing country party, later day national party, to cleanse the public service, all the public servants, the civil servants who'd been aiding and abetting the Chifley curtain agenda. There was a call from his own ranks for Menzies to cleanse the civil service or the public service 
from those who served chiefly in Curtin. But Menzies had no purge of bureaucrats upon his victory in 49. And I think this is important. He retained the services of Nugget Coombs. Nugget Coombs, a major public servant during this period, including into the 50s and so on, he relied on Coombs. Menzies valued his public service and usually took their advice. Now, in policy terms, Menzies brought to its finest pitch this point about civilising capitalism. And if you look at the period, unemployment hovered around 1% to 1.5%. Home ownership grew. The role of the Commonwealth government expanded. Menzies was dedicated to the growth of Canberra as a city and the capital. Arbitration and protection, the foundation of Australian institutions, were upheld in advance. There was no such thing as industrial relations reform. And, of course, the Chifley's immigration program to populate or perish, implemented by the Immigration Minister Arthur Corwell, who later served as the opposition leader against Menzies in the 1960s. Menzies kept that going and kept the white Australia policy. I think this is an important point to bear in mind, although this is hardly a novel observation. Usually when I write columns and write papers, I do try to challenge the conventional wisdom for various reasons. It's just always healthy to question orthodoxies. But in this case, I'm just going to reflect the orthodoxy because I think the overwhelming consensus is right, that Menzies was a creature of the old Australian settlement. This is a term that I think Gerard Henderson used or coined and it was popularised by Paul Kelly in his famous book, The End of Certainty. The Australian settlement, the strong settlement of federation. So in other words, a deaconite liberal. This is the old deaconite liberal tradition. So you had high tariffs, very centralised industrial relations system, a restrictive immigration policy to keep out cheap Asian labour to help boost the unions. That had long been part of the Australian ethos, federation right through to the late 40s and early 50s when Keynesians became popularised. I'll get to that in a moment. Menzies lived in a different age and he believed in a form of progressive politics, which is why he wanted the new party to bear the name Liberal. Menzies, above all else, was dedicated to the notion of public service. Again, as Kelly points out, Menzies' view of government was measured and utilitarian. It should keep out of people's way unless it was helping them, which was its main function. Menzies achieved a better balance than any of his predecessors had between free enterprise and state intervention. His era, the 50s and the 60s, was marked by certainty and predictability, qualities much appreciated after the Depression in the 1930s and, of course, World War II in the 40s. He was conservative. He was cautious. His technique was to delay changes until the public was ready for them. I mentioned John Maynard Keynes before. Menzies, as David Kep points out in his book, The Liberal State, actually met John Maynard Keynes several years earlier. Northern Keynes died, I think, in 46, so he met him in the 30s. In Keynesianism, as many of you, I'm sure, know, based on the writings of the distinguished British columnist John Maynard Keynes and his famous general theory of employment, interest and money, was about the government's role in correcting market failure to generate full employment. And this was obviously a natural fit for the Labor Party in the 40s of Curtin and Chifley. Chifley's biographer, Finn Crisp, asserted that he was, that is, Chif, a Keynesian of the hour. 
Coombs made it very clear that there was very little difference between Chifley and Curtin in their embrace of Keynesianism. But again, this is a crucial point of the narrative. The feature of Keynesianism in this country, as revealed after the 1949 election, was its bipartisan tone. Remember, Coombs advised Curtin, Chifley and Menzies, and he captured the significance of this transformation in his memoirs. Quote, none of us, I think, would have believed that 30 years would pass before unemployment again became a serious concern in economic management. And this was due, according to the conventional wisdom, as the application of Keynesian economics. The welfare state marched forward, public enterprise from Qantas and TAA to the Commonwealth Bank, state-funded Commonwealth Bank, was strongly supported. There was bipartisan support for demobilisation of training schemes for ex-servicemen, commissions on inquiry to study particular aspects of the post-war scene, such as agricultural policy, housing and social security. John Howard makes the point in his excellent book on the Menzies years that the willingness of governments to intervene in the economy through deficit financing when necessary to either expand or reduce demand, this was the nature of Keynesianism, that was seen to have played a large role in delivering the stable economic expansion of that post-war period. There was a centralised waste fixation system. There was a government body called the Wool Corporation, which brought up to 80% of wool crop in one year in the vain hope of maintaining a wool price that the market would never have validated. The top rate of income tax, it's now 47%. Add to the Medicare levy, it's about 49%. In those days, it was 60%. There was a consensus against bank nationalisation, but that went to the fundamental question of restricting free enterprise namely the right of the private banks to continue operating, this is the key point, not the government's intervention in the economy so that the conditions in which enterprise operated were as stable and accommodating as possible. We mentioned the university system before, 57. And I'll just conclude with just two quotes from Robert Menzies that deal with his question of the role of government. 64, so two years before he leaves office, quote, where government action or control has seemed to us to be the best answer to a practical problem, we have adopted that answer at the risk of being called socialists. In a speech in 1970, so four years after he leaves office, quote, the ancient idea that government's only function was to keep the ring while the private enterprise contestants slog it out has no place in our liberal philosophy. Menzies, on the contrary, we recognise that the state has very wide responsibilities by appropriate economic and monetary measures to assist in preventing large-scale unemployment, by social and industrial legislation to provide a high degree of economic security and justice for all its citizens. It must have progressive housing policies, accept greater responsibilities in such disparate matters as education and transportation, ports and railways. So in conclusion, this long reign of Menzies starting in 49 did not represent any major economic realignment. It's a fundamental point. It can't be challenged. As a creature of his culture, Menzies was from the Deaconite liberal tradition. He embraced Keynesianism. He was not a disciple of Friedrich Hayek or Milton Friedman. And he was hardly the harbinger for the Burt Kelly and John Hyde school of liberalism. <laughs> and with that, I'm happy to take questions.
Thank you very much, Georgina, and to you and Zach and Nina for all your hard work. Having convened a couple of annual conferences myself over the last six years for the John Howard Prime Ministerial Library, I know what it takes to make an event run smoothly and then fall in a heap when everyone goes home. So thank you and for your kind hospitality as well. I too would like to acknowledge John Nethercote and Peter Reith, both friends of the Howard Library. We are the custodians of Peter Reith's diaries, which were published as the Reith Papers, which is a cracking read. The diaries are even better, but we can certainly make them available if you're not going to misuse them. Both good friends, so my thoughts are with their families as well. Aaron, the best angle for me is from the car park. <laughs> Nicole, enjoyed talking with you this morning, listening to what you were saying about devices. So my father went to Flinders University when it was brand new. He was a policeman and studied at night. And from the bedroom, I genuinely thought he was doing a degree in theology with the two words that were said quite a lot, with the scrumpling up of the paper. But one of the things that I treasure is that when he passed, I made sure that I kept the typewriter. So things were different when the electric typewriter came to our house with the built-in liquid paper. It was very quiet in that room some things stay with you. So thank you for that uh, retrospective. Unfortunately, David Kemp's not with us, but I am grateful that whenever I call David, he answers. And I very much appreciate his insights, as well as sharing a couple of documents, allowing me to draw on their historical significance. First, if some background, if I may, I'm undertaking a doctorate in public leadership through the University of New South Wales, focusing on think tanks and policy influence. And my case study is the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, or some of you may know it as ASPE. My research began in 2019, so pre-COVID, and then through COVID, and the other side of COVID, I'm still going. But I've interviewed 46 political, media, and academic, and think tank actors, and I decided to undertake this project as I've been intrigued by the role they play in shaping national policy development. Like some of you, I've engaged with think tanks for over two decades in a professional capacity and have been a member of two of them. And I welcome the chance to share some of this research and how it relates to the Menzies era. So think tanks come in many shapes and sizes. Competing definitions vary, making it difficult to provide a reliable figure on how many occupy the think tank landscape. For the late James McGann, Director of Think Tanks and Civil Societies at the University of Pennsylvania, that's his definition, but in shorthand, I'll go with helping to bridge the gap between knowledge and policy. McGann and his colleagues estimate there being some 8,000 think tanks globally with the bulk existing in the United States. Ian Marsh, an early Australian think tank analyst, estimated some 15 think tanks existed in 1972, with that number increasing to 75 in 1994. McGann lists 45 think tanks. In Australia. Trent Hagland, who recently submitted his thesis on think tanks through the University of Sydney, claims there are some 95 think tanks. So you can see where the definition can actually be broad or you can bring it in and determine also then the characteristics of think tanks open that debate up even wider as well. In the period that we're focusing on today, there were two organisations established that we consider to be think tanks today, with a third entering in 1960. These organisations are the Australian Institute of International Affairs, formed in 1933, the Institute of Public Affairs, established in 1943, and the Committee for the Economic Development of Australia in 1960. 
Ian Marsh and Diane Stone persist that Australia's think tank industry evolved through three waves. Others suggest ripples, each heralding the arrival of a new class of institutes closely emulating the evolution of the British industry. The first wave stretching from pre-World War II until the mid-70s, spawning relatively few policy institutes. The second wave in the 70s in Australia produced free market neoliberal institutes in increased numbers. The third, from 1990 to 2000, is distinguished by the rise of left-leaning think tanks. The fourth wave, associated mostly with the Howard era, spawned 28 new institutes, a transformational period for the think tank industry. So much has been written about the history of Australian politics between 1949 and 1972, detailing reflections on the politics and events of that period, dominated by Robert Menzies, but little, however, is said about Menzies sowing the seeds for the rise in think tanks during the second half of the 20th century. My chapter for the second book will explore the advent of research-based policy institutes in Australia, illustrate Menzies' engaging of external experts, highlight his pioneering of the contestability of ideas, and assess the influence that early think tanks had on the Menzies government. In wanting to leave behind the stresses and struggles of the Great Depression and the Second World War, Australians in the 1950s now sought security, social order and stability. Stimulated by optimism and growth, Australia saw the birth of the prosperous society. During this period, state intervention in the economy drove economic growth, largely through rapid population growth and the transition to manufacturing production. While the decade of the 1940s saw the Australian economy devoting much of its resources to the national war effort, the post-war decades, the 50s and the 60s, regarded as a golden age, saw the Menzies government pulling all economic levers at its disposal to sustain the economic boom. Over the next decade and a half, Menzies would be a champion of free enterprise and a believer in Keynesian economics rather than laissez-faire capitalism to support full employment and the welfare state. Keynesian policies range from state subsidies for primary export industries to highly protectionist industry policies. The government also implemented full employment strategies, encouraged high levels of direct foreign investment and pursued an expansion in immigration levels. As Australia developed and grew, the demands on government increased in both range and complexity and so too did the public service change in terms of both its structure and services offered. 50 years on from Federation, the Commonwealth Government's ascendancy in the affairs of the Federation were increasing. Increased magnitude, scope and complexity of government activity resulted in an incremental dependence on professional advice. In opposition, Menzies relied on the IPA in developing the policy platform for the Liberal Party. His relationship with President Coles and inaugural director Charles Kemp was instrumental in shaping the beliefs and values of the Liberal Party. In his Forgotten People Address in 1942, Menzies argues against special interest groups, including unions and business lobbies, seen by Menzies as the officialdom of the organised masses. Governing in the national interest was no easy task. With competing voices at his heels, on one hand the Chamber of Commerce arguing for unrestricted importation of goods and the Chamber of Manufactures demanding import controls, 
Menzies believes strongly that the purpose of the political process was to determine what is the national interest. Addressing the IPA annual dinner in 1954, Menzies proffered, what I liked about the institution of the IPA was that it was designed to get people of moment, of significance in the industrial and business world to do some clear objective thinking. For after all, a government goes in or a government goes out. But what matters in the country is that there should always be a body of honest, objective thought, which means that a great number of leaders of opinion have clear minds and clear long-range ideas. Further, he adds, and I would like to say to George Coles, and I would like to say to my friend Kemp, that the publications of the IPA have to me, and I don't doubt to many other people, been beyond value because they have always set out to be objective and to be philosophic, to put the matter in the broad, to give us all an opportunity of fitting our thinking into a real pattern. But later in that speech, Menzies proclaimed, what we need in Australia, what is needed in all free countries, is a body of people who don't set themselves up to say that the government is always right or that the government is always wrong. Because speaking as one with a fairly long experience in these fields, I know nobody better that a government is not always right, that a government can feel that it is right most of the time, and what's more important, always feel that it was honest about what it did, even if it turned out to be wrong, that as much as any mortal person in public affairs may aspire to. But while a proponent of such organisations as the IPA and AIIA in opposition, I will argue Menzies had little use for them in office. Yes, he would accept invitations to speak at annual conferences, but he would rely more on senior members of the public service when in government, much to the chagrin of his more noticeable supporters in business and eventually the Australian public. Menzies did, however, take steps midway through his premiership to reach out to experts for advice. In December 1956, the Menzies government commissioned Sir Keith Murray, the chair of the British University Grants Committee, to head an inquiry into Australia's university system. Menzies, wanting to identify ways for the federal government to contribute to their development, wrote to Murray inviting him to, and I quote, investigate how best the universities may serve Australia at a time of great social and economic development within the nation. Menzies set Murray a cracking pace. Murray had three months to inquire and deliberate on the future of Australian universities, and Murray met the challenge. So here's the report here, if anyone would like to look at it. This report, presented in September 1957, and had no idea there was four font available back then, it is quite small, confirmed Menzies' suspicion of a lack of appropriate facilities, quality of teaching, and a pending explosion in student numbers. Murray's advice was accepted almost entirely in full. As a result of acting on Murray's recommendations, by 1966, there was to be some 95,000 students enrolled at Australian universities, an increase of 35% in a decade. At the same time as the ripple of think tanks occurred, Australian universities increased in number from six in 1939 to 17 by 1973. Along with the review into higher education and the Morshead review into defence, 
It is the Vernon Inquiry I wish to focus on briefly. Ahead of the 1961 federal election, the drums were beating for Menzies. Along with the infamous credit squeeze of 1960, business leaders were becoming frustrated by Menzies' almost sole reliance on the bureaucracy. He was urged to listen less to the views of interventionist bureaucrats in Treasury and more to ideas emanating from outside of Canberra. A one-seat majority would focus the mind of Menzies, but would also near exhaust him. On 17 October 1962, Menzies announced the appointment of a Committee of Economic Inquiry led by former Colonial Sugar Refining Chairman and Managing Director Sir James Vernon. The Vernon Committee was tasked with assessing the government's desire of maintaining a high rate of economic growth without prejudicing the attainment of full employment and price stability. Vernon began his work the following February. At the time of the report being released, one of the country's leading economists, Professor Downing, described its three-volume report as the greatest inquest ever conducted into the Australian economy. He wrote of the, quote, the usefulness of providing a wide basis for a public debate about the issues raised by pursuing a high rate of economic growth. The report's most recognised recommendation was the creation of an advisory council on economic growth to review the country's experience and prospects of growth and to provide a forum of debate, consultation and communication about various matters concerning the economy. The committee's proposal for an advisory council drew on the workings of the Economic Council of Canada. That body included functions such as preparing an annual review of growth experience and long-term prospects, of, a, of trends in overseas investment, and to act as a forum for consultation and undertake research and publish research papers. The proposed council was to be purely an advisory body, its members being government appointees backed by a secretariat, with the government free to reject or accept any advice tendered. Fearing a reduction in the government's freedom of manoeuvre, Menzies was enraged at the prospect of his or any future government being overridden on economic judgments. He was to have none of it. Speaking to the House of Representatives, Menzies charged, no government from whatever side of the House it may come, and indeed no parliament, can abdicate its own authority and responsibility for national policy. It will welcome the assistance of experts, but its tasks will take it far beyond the limits of economic expertise. Political policy in a democratic community does not depend upon purely economic considerations. No government can hand over to bodies outside the government the choice of objectives and the means of attaining them in important fields of policy. Menzies' outburst on receiving the report astonished not only members of the committee and the public, but also parliamentary members of the Liberal Party. Menzies was determined to exert his authority over John McEwen, leader of the country party and minister for trade. The Vernon controversy suggests that entrenched departments of the public service wielded sufficient power to prevent the establishment of bodies which would cut across existing channels of advice. Perhaps nearing the end of his premiership, an eye to the next election, and possibly now lacking in Liberal imagination, I contend Menzies missed an opportunity to embark on a significant step in government reform. An idea, however, 
taken up by his protege, John Howard, some three decades later in establishing the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. The now declassified Cabinet decision sets out the rationale for this decision. There are two key reasons to establish an independent institute to study strategic policy. The first is to encourage development of alternative sources of advice to government on key strategic and defence policy issues. The principles of contestability have been central to our government's philosophy and practice of public administration, but these principles have not been effectively implemented in relation to defence and strategic policy, despite the vital national interest and significant sums of money that are at stake. The government has found that there are almost no sources of alternative information or analysis on key issues in defence policy, including the critical questions of our capability needs and how they can be satisfied. The ASPE will be charged with providing an alternative source of expertise on such issues. Second, public debate of defence policy is inhibited by a poor understanding of the choices and issues involved. The ASPE will be tasked to contribute an informed and independent voice to public discussion on these issues. When asked about the influence of think tanks on policy development in Australia, political columnist and author Paul Kelly made clear to me that, and I quote, we do not have a culture of think tanks going back over our history that the way other countries do. This is a little bit tied into the weakness of Australian philanthropy. When I started as a political journalist, there were virtually no think tanks at all. The focus in a policy sense was the bureaucracy, overwhelmingly. So two things are happening. We've seen the emergence of quite a number of think tanks over the last three to four decades, and it's an experiment. I think that what we're learning is how to use think tanks and the think tanks themselves are learning how to operate. We didn't have a think tank culture. This is an experiment. It's a good experiment, but I think the results are very mixed and that is only to be expected, end quote. So Kelly's comments are enlightening. Like governments of today, the Menzies government had at its disposal an army of public servants delivering frank and fearless advice. The difference being little to no competition from outside of government for advice. In placing a high priority on advice, biographer and columnist Troy Bramston reminds us there was a strong central bureaucratic influence over government during the Menzies period. This influence declined in subsequent years due to several factors, such as ministers relying less on the bureaucracy, new and competing sources of policy advice, the introduction of personal staff and structural changes to the bureaucracy that dispersed this power across departments and increased the authority of ministers over public servants. Menzies maintained a close relationship with department heads. He looked to them for advice, end quote. So what did start during the Menzies era was the reaching outside of the monopoly service provider model to seek wider opinion. Menzies understood that as a Prime Minister who had respect and authority in his party and Cabinet and in the electorate could lead a government successfully. In a 1966 ABC television documentary, Mr Prime Minister, he identified the two greatest sources of Prime Ministerial power as the capacity to lead and influence the creation of policy and being the government's chief public relations officer. 
Over time, as the government came to deal with more and more complex issues, it became apparent the public service was no longer capable of being the font of all knowledge. And as Charles Lindblom, economist and Sterling Professor Emeritus of Political Science and Economics at Yale University opined in 1965, for democracy to realise its potential as the most intelligent system of rule, a diversity of voices is crucial, as well as institutions that increase the likelihood that the debate between these voices is well informed. Menzies is remembered for running an effective cabinet process as being a skilled administrator of government and party manager. His policies were central to the shaping of modern Australia. In reaching out to experts both in and outside of Australia, Menzies can be regarded as an early pioneer of contestability of advice to aid in shaping policies and disrupting the hold senior bureaucrats had over providing advice to government. I contend that among the many political and policy achievements of the Menzies era, sowing the seeds for the think tank experiment in Australia is one of them. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and I'm very glad to be here. My name's Chris Beer. I'm affiliated with the University of Newcastle. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we are gathered on and that this project engages with land Darkenjung people. It stems from a wider project I'm currently in the middle of, looking at suburbanisation of the Central Coast in the post-war era, broadly from 1945 to the end of the 90s. So it's excerpts from that. My personal background and interest is in urban politics, and I guess for today I've chosen to provide a regional history of the Menzies era, noting that Menzies, the Menzies period of government was experienced in different ways in different parts of Australia, and I believe that the Central Coast has particularly interesting stories to tell from that context. Okay, so the region. So for those of you who may not be familiar with where I'm talking about, Central Coast lies between Sydney to the south there and Newcastle, hence the name Central Coast, essentially the centre of the coast of New South Wales. Its main town is Gosford, which I presume most people will have heard of. Other places you might have heard of include Woi Woi, home to Spike Milligan's mother, a famous comedian of the mid-century period, and Tarragal is the other perhaps notable settlements, perhaps more famous for ALP politics. There was a notorious 1975 conference there, and a faction in state politics were known as the Terrigals in the 90s and early 2000s. So that's a little bit of Australian political history from the region that I won't be touching on today. In terms of its look and feel, basically think of the northern beaches of Sydney, so the area from Manly to Palm Beach, roughly that sort of coastline, that sort of environment. And for purposes of this talk, think of it essentially a rural area in 1945, characterised basically by forestry, market gardening, holiday, some small holiday guest houses. Although it is notable for having a coal mining industry in the northern part of the area. So the Lake Macquarie area, sort of adjacent to the Hunter in Newcastle, did actually have coal mining, and that's part of its political story as well, as you might imagine. Okay, so speaking to the broader context, the Menzies era has its own, I guess, historiography in terms of Australian urban history. At least one person earlier today has already mentioned it was a period of making a property-owning democracy. Australia has always had high, historically high levels of home ownership. And this period went to its absolute maximum. So it started with roughly 
50% of people were homeowners around at the end of the Second World War. Mid-60s, that reached an excess of 70%, and for some cohorts, younger people, it actually touched 90%. This is the absolute ascendancy of the era of property, property-owning democracy. And this was a deliberate effort of government policy. The Commonwealth state housing agreements uh, were used to leverage home ownership. Roughly a third of all owner-occupier finance towards the, the end of this period was being provided by the Commonwealth in some form, whether through provisions to lending institutions, through loans to veterans or um, other mechanisms. There were also interest rate controls and rent controls limited the attractiveness of landlordism. So there was very little competition from investors in terms of the market for home ownership. So everyone here could probably imagine what's is a mental image of suburbia in the 50s in Australia. So waves of suburbs creeping outwards from around our major cities. There's frontier time. There's a famous American book about American suburbanization called The Crab Grass Frontier. Australian academics, so it was written in the mid-80s. Australian academics in the mid-90s wrote their version of this called The Cream Brick Frontier, I believe. So it's that sort of physical manifestation of the Menzies era is perhaps a, a really strong mental image. It was the age, it was the commencement of mass automobility. So the image on the right side Right, the slides show an arch built by the motor industry, motor industry lobby group to commemorate the visit of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. That's Macquarie Street in Sydney running down to the harbour. So that was very much part of the era of Mendes urbanism. Of course, the governments, one of, their, one of their key platforms in 1949 was getting rid of petrol rationing. So that was clearly a boost towards that direction in our cities. Other key issues or other key things that happened was the commencement or the continuation of mass migration to our cities, as that was again mentioned. Something like 2 million people migrated net to Australia from a starting population of 8 million in the decades up to the 70s. And alongside that, growth is also driven by the baby boom, of course, but less, perhaps less well known as the marriage boom behind this, behind the baby boom. So during this period, 95% of women were married at some point in their life, which was contrasting with the historical average of 85% for the uh, First World War. And of course, then there's the, I guess, the overarching narrative of this being an age of affluence. The term milk bar economy has been used uh, by Copland to describe this. It's one of those terms, I guess, like the lucky country that was perhaps used originally ironically or derogatively, but in fact, actually sounds quite good when you think about it. So one of my PhD supervisors, Nick Brown, he wrote a great history of the 50s called Governing Prosperity. It talks about this being an age where freedoms and satisfactions were finally achieved by the austerity of the 30s and 40s. So... Just to round up those things in the slide, I'll that last point in that slide is decentralization was a, another key theme of this era. So even though our cities were growing enormously, there was still a lot of public debate around pushing people out to the regions, not pushing but encouraging the development of the regions, a bipartisan thing. Some people saw this as an urban efficiencies thing. It's more efficient to have people spread across the country rather than clustered and congested in major cities. Others saw it as a moral project in place people could have fuller community lives and be better citizens in the lower key environments offered by regional areas. So from that background, I'll move on to the Central Coast specifically. The image on the right there, for those of you who know the region, is North Avoca in the early 50s. Today, that's a median house price is 1.7 million. It's a lot more if you're on the beachfront. But as you can see, it was reasonably low key back then. So I'd like to think of the Central Coast as something of a crucible Australian sea change. So sea change is really one of the big demographic stories of Australia in the second half of the 20th century. And the Central Coast, perhaps along with the Gold Coast, is one of the regions where it really started and got underway. So during the periods of interest to this conference, Central Coast population jumped up from 29, about 30,000 to about 40,000. 
that was associated by a building boom, sorry, that was complemented by a building boom, which saw more than a doubling of dwellings in the region. It's The demographics behind this are kind of interesting. It had very particular people's stories behind this. A lot of older people, the demographics were definitely of older people who'd moved there for retirement. They were overwhelmingly Australian-born as opposed to new, new Australians. And there's also an element of long-distance commuters to Sydney. So for those of you who, again, know the region, there's a nice motorway between Sydney and Gosfield, Sydney and the Central Coast these days, which is very spectacular carving through the sandstone country. The road like that back in the Menzies era was nothing like that, so you would have to be very committed to driven us, or there were steam trains that also offered connectivity. So nonetheless, people were willing to make that distance then and as they are now. So even today, like something like a third of the workforce of this region still commutes Sydney proper to um, work and live by the beach. So I've got a the second to bottom dot point is about the land market. So it's quite interesting. So the home ownership rate exceeded that of, of Australia as a whole and, and Sydney as a whole. A substantial proportion of that of, was actually weekenders or second homes. So this is really as the affluent society made, maybe not brick, but certainly fibre by the beach. It's a, it's a real transformation of the Australian built environment through and the land was cheap. So I've mentioned there was a land glut. So <laughs> when you read the, the local histories, you hear of waiters and clerks and other people of very modest means being able to purchase m- multiple blocks of land. I think I've calculated that land by the beach has always been expensive, but anything further back was something you could buy a block for something like 5% of the annual male wage at that time. So it's a completely unique market. It's a very distinct market compared to well, where we've moved on from them. Okay. So how did this all play out politically? On the right-hand side of my slide there is the division of Robertson as it stood in 1948. So it's kind of hard to see. I apologize for that, but the thick red line, if I go off-piste and wander and point, is that going to create problems? Or is that, can I take the microphone with me? That's no, just too hard. Don't worry about it. So essentially, it is hard to, too hard to see. Anyway, so basically we're looking at the area between Sydney and Newcastle, the division of Robertson today is much smaller than this area. So today, this takes in parts of what's now Barara. There's the electorate of Dobell, the electorate of Shortland, and eats into its current area quite substantially. But the electorate itself is something of a geographical representation of sea change. So like, like the population as a whole, at Federation, the Robertson's a Federation electorate, and originally was centred around the Mudgee and Dubbo area by the 50s and moved to the sea as, <laughs> with the people. So it's kind of a curious political geographic representation of the sea-changing phenomenon. Anyway, so yes, in terms of the political history of the region during this period, the Liberals gained it in 49 and they held on to it in 51. The population did say no to the Communist Party referendum in 1951 by a reasonably significant margin. And then nonetheless, the Liberals held it in 54 with just over 2% on the basis of communist preferences. So it's, um, it's quite a curious little story. Okay, so my slide here, the man on the right is Roger Dean, who was the the Liberal MP throughout that period. As I mentioned, he picked it up in 49. His family background is is perhaps typical of the non-Labour side of politics. His family owned a brickworks in Newcastle, served overseas during the Second World War, also in the Northern Territory as as a lieutenant and lead the army. Came back, got into politics, met his wife. His wife was a, a secretary in the Liberal Party office and 1949 election. He got pre-selection essentially as a compromise candidate, even though he was from just outside the area. He was seen as wasn't tied to either two or two other competing candidates and was able to enter part or get pre-selection that way. 
He mentioned that his ALP opponent at the time, he had the appearance of cruising and didn't work that hard, and that helped him obviously get over the line. He also has acknowledged that he needed basically, I mentioned the coal mining earlier, he needed basically to win a third of those coal miners' votes to get the numbers he needed, which obviously he achieved. So he, he talks about going down into the mines in, his, in an oral history project he did for Australian Parliament House in 1984, which is a treasure trove of information about him in the Central Coast. So yes, and then you mentioned that he didn't actually blame the miners of going on strike at that time, not so much in terms of wages, but just in terms of the conditions that they had to endure. So he had some sympathy for coal miners, even in his later years. So as a local MP, he was very orthodox, too loyal of followers as one assessment of him. Um, so he never made it to the ministry. He was, I guess, seen as not, seen as not assertive enough to earn his, earn his place at that table. But he did eventually get the role of administrator of the Northern Territory in 1964. And then that was followed by being the consul general in San Francisco from 1970 to, I think, 1974, something like that. So he certainly achieved some sort of recognition after leaving parliament. Yeah, in terms of his public statements, so I've been through the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, there's a local newspaper called the Gosford Times, and Wang District Advocates. So he's made various speeches, which are all pretty much were orthodoxy with party policy at the time. He encouraged people to be welcoming of new Australians. He supported the local flora and fauna protection society, so forth. And it was just strongly in favour of empire and the Commonwealth, so no real surprises there. In terms of anti-communism, that does come through as a theme in his 1984 oral history transcript. So he certainly supported the government's position on that and spoke publicly and did his bit in the electorate to make the government's case, even though the electorate didn't, didn't go that way ultimately. But that's not to die. It was a real issue for local people. In terms of other sources, the local newspapers note that the council rejected the Eureka League, i.e. the youth wing of the Communist Party, from having summer camps on the Central Coast. And also, I came across an example in a history of one of the beachside suburbs where a woman's association in the 1950s had their rules and one of those were no communists allowed. So people were, this was clearly an issue at a local scale as well as on a national scale. So in terms of his broader views, he's, we've talked about Mindy's achievements a lot today. He was asked about this in 1984 and he said that supporting empire and the development of Australia were Mindy's greatest achievements and he's sort of but he also said that Menzies, he was asked to name what the biggest failure of Menzies was, and he said succession planning. He sort of thought they sort of slipped, walked their way into halt, which was obviously didn't, well, anyway, that was his view. And he, in terms of, I guess, the broader politics of the time, he said he saw Australians as, quote, a free enterprise people, even if they weren't coalition supporters. So he saw free enterprise and liberal politics as transcending party political lines. Oh, sorry, that last dot point there. So Mendes and the Central Coast. So yes, I've come across little snippets of Mendes himself and his interactions with the Central Coast. So being a marginal electorate, he certainly visited on numerous occasions. Mendes dropped by the Dean household on occasion and brought his children toys. So it's appreciated. Less appreciated, though, is Central Coast being quite attractive. And near Sydney, Mendes apparently asked the Dean to host international visitors more than he'd like. So he found that to be a bit of a drag in the end. But um, I guess you take the good with the bad. Moving on, so slide, the picture on the right there is Terrigal, Terrigal Beach in the 1950s. People seemed very well protected from the sun in a way I didn't actually expect, I wouldn't have expected in retrospect. I would have thought this, this sun consciousness would come later, but there you go. The archive throws up surprises. So and we also heard about the, I think it's earlier on, about the Forgotten People's Speech and the home's material, human and spiritual. And so I've added their modifier coastal, which I believe coastal homes combine those all in, a, in all those dimensions of homes that unique kind of way so my first dot point there is something of a thought experiment so like my reading of the central coast experience is that it's a very liberal urbanist 
product. So if you consider, I mean, my knowledge of socialist urbanism is not comprehensive, but I have some awareness of what so urbanism looked like in the socialist countries of the Eastern Bloc during that time. They certainly had seaside resorts in places like Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, the Black Sea, and so forth, but or even the Baltic and East Germany. But this sort of spontaneous choice and enablement of people to be able to build their homes and all their holiday homes en masse is really, I think, a product of the liberal system giving people choices and enabling them to live lives in a way that wasn't necessarily foreseen by the way that we managed our cities otherwise or could have been managed otherwise. So that second dot point there, I guess, sums it up as the Central Coast's experience during the Menzies area is a revealed choice around how people value time, distance and play as opposed to other considerations and all being told how to live their lives. And finally, I think this can also be read here against some broader themes in, I guess, historiography from the period, uh, which is named Robert Hughes, the art historian. In The Fatal Shore talks about Australians having a distinct view of Eden's property. And certainly the development of weekenders and lifecycle housing, i.e. people moving there for retirement, really speaks to that. And also Les Murray in his later years, I think in the 90s, wrote a book or had it as a collection of essays of his writings called The Quality of Sprawl. Les Murray also lived on the coast, New South Wales coast, a little bit further north, not in this particular region. But certainly his, some of his writing really engages with the development of the coast at this time. And he quotes, has an interesting quote of an American, of, no sorry, it's an Australian observer of America and Australia. So it's not, it's not Les Murray's quote himself, he's quoting someone else, where he talks about American secret utopias where Australians seek Arcadias. And I think this movement to the coast that was enabled by our liberal urbanism at the time speaks to that Arcadia-seeking of nature and homes and lifestyle being enabled by the politics and policy of that period. So that is my story of the Central Coast. Thank you for your time. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from the presenters at our 2022 conference on this summer series of the Afternoon Light podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute. To hear more from the Robert Menzies Institute, please make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Thank you.